Welcome to the More Equity Podcast by Harlem Capital. Harlem Capital is a diversity-focused, early-stage venture capital fund based in New York. We're on a mission to invest in 1,000 diverse entrepreneurs over the next 20 years. On this episode, we're speaking with founders that Harlem Capital has recently invested in. Follow along for the conversation. I, whenever I encounter a problem, I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna have a uh, hypothesis of what I think is the right move in that scenario. And I'm going to go and find out somebody who vehemently disagrees with my viewpoint, just to keep me honest. And like to say, hey, there's a, there's another path that you hadn't considered and you should really strongly consider it. Hey everyone, this is your host, Abhi Pandya, venture intern at Harlem Capital. Today, I'm talking with Yao Inning, the co-founder and CEO of Malomo. Malomo allows businesses to turn shipment tracking into a marketing channel to create branded customer experiences. Yao is a serial entrepreneur, first running an EdTech startup before launching a digital product agency, and most recently, Maloma. In this episode, you'll hear about Yao's inspiration for pursuing entrepreneurship, why he sought to create Maloma, and what it's like being a diverse founder in Indiana. Yao, thanks again for joining us today. Yeah, pumped, pumped to be here. Appreciate the, the opportunity. Of course, really excited to chat today. So you said in the past that receiving a package is an emotional journey, and yeah. I love that. It feels so true today in lockdown when we're only buying things online. It's it's like Christmas every day. <laughs> what made you want to create a business around this experience? Yeah, for sure. So I ran a digital agency for a little under a decade with my co-founder now that I work with, and we worked on a lot of large-scale technology projects. Like we built we built an Uber clone for a a company that was trying to do that. Like real-time tracking with public transit. We did the same thing for a local farm who was kind of selling meat products and, and vegetable products to their customers locally, and they wanted to like track deliveries. And so we had accidentally like built a really good understanding of like how to track physical items in the real world in a digital way. And, and later on in the, the agency's life, we started to like work with a lot of consumer and e-commerce companies as well. And one in particular fascinating business, they rented kind of high-end children's dresses to people that didn't want to buy, buy a dress for their, you know, their daughter who was a flower girl in the wedding, right? You don't want to spend hundreds of dollars on a dress that they're probably going to spill a bunch of juice on. Right. Um, the, the, one of the, like, that, that was one of the hardest projects we worked on. Like e-commerce platforms are typically built to just like send goods out and you really just need to kind of track like inventory levels, they had to know where each individual piece in their inventory was at any given time, whether it was with a customer, whether it was with, whether it was with the cleaners or in getting repairs so that they could predict the availability on every single dress so that you as a customer could say like, oh, I know I want to rent it on this date, which means I need to have the dress in inventory by this date because it's got to ship and have some, some lag times. And, and uh, that process of like logistics and reverse logistics was just an incredible, incredibly hard challenge. When a dress didn't arrive, it created like tons of customer experience problems, right? Like people are freaking out because they don't, they usually are not like buying another dress as a backup. Right. Um, right. And so like most of the problems ended up occurring during that delivery experience when something just didn't show up or didn't arrive. And the brand was the one that got blamed whenever that happened. Like the customer would just like, you better make this right, or I'm never going to shop with you again, even though it was 
UPS or FedEx or Not whoever that messed up. Yeah, <laughs> right. So we're like, I wonder if we could like, I know that's a hard problem to solve, but I wonder if we could like protect the brand, if you will, like protect them from bad delivery experiences so that they can continue to retain those customers over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we went to a couple of our, our other e-commerce clients uh, to kind of say, you know, we're seeing this problem. We don't know if it's simply just in this like weird kind of reverse logistics, logistics realm, or is it generally a problem in e-commerce? And all of our clients were like, yes, the number one support ticket we get is where is my order? And it's killing our brand reputation with our customer base. Um, and so if we could have visibility into where every single order is, we could proactively uncover problems before customers knew that they were problems and created that relationship with them, we could build stronger relationships. We could get them to buy from us more often and refer their friends. And so that was the impetus for it was just seeing that problem firsthand at our agency. I love that focus on protecting the brand. That's such a unique start. Yeah. Where did the name Malomo come from? Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a story that's near and dear to my heart, inspired by my mom, actually. So she battled cancer for a number of years, and it was a, it was a rare form of cancer. So it, it kind of like attacked her central nervous system. So she lost like slight versions of her fine motor skills and a little bit of her mobility. And so she had to stop working and moved home. And the experience kind of like really caused her to think a lot more about her health and cleansing and wellness and so she got really into like soap making as a result of that. Uh, she's pretty, she's pretty entrepreneurial spirited. And, and so people, when they were kind of going through, well, was she, when she was going through treatments and would come home, like lots of her friends and family would come and visit her and she'd hand out her latest batch of soap to them. And then they'd launch into stories, just reminiscing. And so she named that soap company Malomo. And the thing for me was like, it was for her, it wasn't really the soap that mattered. It was like this opportunity to connect with the people in her life that mattered and, and continue to build those relationships. And so she, she passed away after, after that battle. And I really wanted to keep her, her spirit and name alive. And so I used that name for the company and it's, it's really an inspiration for what we do to our, our mission is to create lasting relationships I've been helping merchants do that by kind of using delivery and tracking as a moment of connection with their audience and, and how they tell those stories and build relationships. So that's that's kind of the inspiration for the name. I'm so sorry to hear about your mom. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Was it seeing your family pursue entrepreneurship or maybe something else growing up that influenced you and made you want to follow a similar path? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I'm not sh- so I, I've I've uh, for as long as I can remember, I've always wanted to start a company. And I don't know if this is like an ingrained trait in immigrant children, because <laughs> you see so many. You see so right. many. I I partially think it's like that spirit of adventure. Like so my parents are from Ghana, and so they came to the states in the '70s, and so they just like took risks, right, a lot to just create a better life for themselves and for us, for me and my sister and my, my brother as kids. And I think like a lot of that is just like g- genetically passed to us where mm-hmm. we just, uh, you know, the, that, that, that desire to go out and just adventure and create. Yeah. And then like, I, for whatever reason, I just love the concept of like, you have an idea and you can like, bring it into the world. And that opportunity to just create is just really fascinating to me. I studied 
in school, I studied civil engineering because I just loved the idea that you could, on paper, you could draw and design a large scale building and then like watch it come to life in front of your eyes. It was just fascinating to me. And I feel like company creation is, is really the same where you've got a concept or idea and you through sheer force and will have to figure out a way to like make that thing exist. And then you've got to make it exist for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, and that's just really thrilling to me. So that, that's, uh, that, that, that's really been the drive for me to kind of like be an entrepreneur and, and launch a company. I love that. Do you use the civil engineering degree today or not so much? Not so much. <laughs> yeah. I, I use, I do not use it. I use, <laughs> I use maybe like elements uh, of some of the concepts, like, like in engineering in general, it's like systems thinking, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, we did a lot of like math and calculation. Like I lived in Excel and like now like modeling company growth, right? You're thinking in those ways, you're thinking about like problems and how do you creatively solve them? And so like, I, I think the degree was really good in helping set that foundation of just like that engineering mindset of how you just have to work through problems and get, get over hurdles without having a, a playbook of how it should work. But yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I never used a day of my degree in like the real world. I was, I never had a civil engineering job. So That's totally fair. <laughs> Yeah. And so you've headquartered the company in Indianapolis. And yeah. I'm curious, what are the pros and cons of being there? And how has COVID and a more remote world changed those factors, if at all? Yeah. Yeah. Indiana is not necessarily seen as a, a tech hub or <laughs> innovation hub. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a sleepy city. So it's been a really great place to build the company, but there's definitely challenges. So the, the great parts about building here are there is a vibrant kind of pool of talent to pull from. We've got a lot of really strong engineering schools, Notre Dame, Purdue, IU, Ball State has got a great journalism and PR and marketing program. So there's a really good density of like high performing schools here to pull really great talent. There have been several large tech exits. So exact target um, was a big exit that sold to Salesforce and Salesforce turned that into their, the pillar company of their marketing cloud, Salesforce marketing cloud. And then they, you know, Salesforce planted their HQ2 here. And then we had exits like Angie's List on the consumer side, Primo on the marketing side, a couple billion dollar exits from a tech perspective, which is kind of trickled down. So there's now a great like base of SaaS executives who scaled to billion dollar exits that you can lean on which has been phenomenal. The cost of living is really low. I can raise a $2 million round or you might have to raise a $5 million round in New York or San Francisco to get the same output, right? Right. Um, so our dollars can go further. And then there's just like a different like mindset where in Indiana and the Midwest in general, it's very much like hard work is what gets the outcomes, right? It's methodical growth, which tends to lead to more sustainable businesses. The downside is one is capital. Like we have to go to the coast. What we raised from Harlem Capital, our other lead investor in the last round is based in San Francisco. So there's, you know, there's not a ton of like funding options. Do you think Zoom changes that at all? Yeah, it, it 100% leveled the playing field. Um, it did for sure. Like I feel like there's two ways to, to raise capital on the coast. You got to have a deep network there and you got you to gotta be there in person. Mm -hmm. uh, both of those things are hard if you're not there, right? So, so yeah, z z the pandemic in Zoom definitely was an equalizer where I didn't have to be like present on the coast for six weeks at a time to raise a round. I could, 
I could connect with an investor through digital channel and, and, you know, over a couple of zoom calls, pitch people and, and, and get a check. So I think it's definitely been a, a game changer, which then it makes, it makes building the company in Indiana kind of a, a really good no brainer with those mm -hmm. other attributes. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And speaking of Indiana, you actually started your entrepreneurial journey with the Or Fellowship. Uh, what was that like? And maybe through the ventures that came out of that, Pocket Tales and Sticks and Leaves, were there any lessons learned that you still hold on to today? For sure. Uh, yeah, the Or Fellowship was it was a great it was a great program. It's a it's a two year fellowship that the goal was to to stop the brain drain of Indiana. So, like I said, a lot of great schools, but all those students want to go to the coast after graduation, the Or Fellowship's goal was, can we create an environment that keeps students here locally by placing them at high growth, early stage tech companies, giving them like unfettered access to the management teams of those companies. So they kind of get a front row seat. They bring in monthly business leader meetings, uh, business leaders to kind of present on, you know, different aspects of growing a company. And so it was really like a mini MBA that you're getting paid for and a couple thousand students apply each year. In my class, only 10 students got in. Um, I say students, we're, we're college graduates at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, 10 grads get in, you get placed uh, with a company, worked there for two years. So it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, and it's really what kept me in Indiana. I was, again, I was ready to go to the coasts right. after graduation, but really it was a good stepping stone to like just having coming from an engineering background and going through the program gave me a lot of confidence as to like, I can, I can do this. I don't need a business degree to go start a company. So the first company I started after the program was called Pocket Tales. It was an online reading game for kids. The analogy we used was, you know, fantasy football, like made you watch teams that you wouldn't necessarily care about because it kind of gamified the experience. We were kind of doing the same thing with books, like kids that want to read books, we could gamify the experience, we could get them to read a lot more. And it was, it was an amazing experience. I learned the lessons of timing markets. So we, yeah. we, were, we were very early with the first product we launched. We basically, the iPhone had just started accepting third-party developers. Wow. So we're like, it'd be awesome if we could turn children's books into iPhone apps. So we built a couple of prototypes, gave them to the parents and par their parents were like, this is amazing. That's incredible. I didn't know the phone could do this. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm not giving, I'm not giving my kid a $600 device. There's no way. Right. Um, and so we're like, okay, well, we're ahead of the curve. Like, <laughs> no, no <laughs> different from today where everyone's got an iPhone and iPad uh, and iWatch. <laughs> Uh, yeah, man, it's, it was, it was brutal. Like, so then, uh, so we were like, hey, we spent, we kind of spent about six months going down that trajectory, hit that dead end. We're like, okay, well, we know every, every school has, you know, computers in the classroom, maybe we can make it an online game. And so we spent, you know, kind of pivoting six months, building an, an online platform. And then, and then the iPad came out and then schools moved to one-to-one -one iPads. We're like, you gotta be kidding me. So like <laughs> other competitors launched on, yeah, on those platforms got traction and, and we just couldn't figure out the distribution model in time to kind of make a pivot work again. So that was a great learning experience. Timing of markets, yeah. The age old saying, good team, bad market, market wins. Good team, good market, market wins. Oh, I love that. You gotta remember <laughs> that one. Yeah, yeah, market always wins, right? So we ended up shutting that company down. And then the next company that was Sticks and Leaves, which was the digital agency that I referenced earlier, 
And we learn the discipline of cash flow, right? Like as a services business, you've got to figure out how to provide for yourself, right? You can't live off of venture dollars. And many lessons learned with that business, but that was the, the key one is like, you've got to, it's resource management to the nth degree. You're always either under or overutilized with your team. You've only, always got too many projects that are not enough. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and then that, it really becomes a game of just managing cash flow. Um, uh, and so like, we just got really good and disciplined around that. Um, and so when we, when we raised venture, uh, you know, we were, you know, we, 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 we purposefully tried to get to revenue as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then tried to just like be precious with every single dollar um, as we as we grew the business. So that was kind of a big learning from from that business. That's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. This next question I was actually asked to ask you, what does it mean to be the largest black seed in Indiana? Yeah, it's an honor and it's also a disappointment. You know, anytime you're recognized as one of X, you know, it's obviously kind of nice to be in rarefied air. It's an honor that I don't take lightly. And I know like I'm looked at as a founder that's representing my community at large. And so there are a lot of eyes on me, both from founders of color and just the general business community. It's no secret that less than 3% of venture dollars go to founders of color. And so there's different hurdles that we have to get over to build companies at scale. But if we get over those hurdles, there's a lot of data that suggests those companies are more durable, right? Because you had to you had to overcome a lot more than a founder who doesn't look like us. Mm-hmm. It's a disappointment because you know it's it's 2020. How, how is it that a 2.7 million dollar seed round, which is pretty typical, right? It's pretty average in today's market. That sounds really that sounds really no, but they're, they're absolutely right. <laughs> But how has it been like that long that a founder in Indiana of color hasn't raised that much capital before? It's really disappointing. So my hope is that I can set an example. And I think that the tides are changing a bit where, you know, I feel like in today's environment, like venture funds look at backing founders of color as, as kind of like, it's just, it's a PR move or it's a good thing to do, but it's not like the thing that's going to move my business forward. Like I'm kind of operating the business to, to at least have an outcome where it, it is, oh, I, man, I've been missing a huge asset class mm-hmm. for a long period of time. And if I can move to be a first mover in this space, oh boy, the returns that I could get, right? Unmatched. I think that's what Harlem is doing, right? I think they've identified a huge gap in the market. I feel like founders of color, a lot of cultural tastes come from like, communities that are that are cultural right absolutely absolutely <laughs> and you know they're, they're just large groups of people that are underserved and most of the time people that come from those communities are the ones that see the opportunity right and so right. i'm really hopeful that harlem just creates a massive massive groundswell movement around this absolutely and we're really lucky to have you in the portfolio yeah yeah so you've had a lot of entrepreneurial experiences and so i'm curious whether personal or professional What's the biggest challenge that you face on the day-to-day? Yeah. How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So let me try to like find the, the, the one or two threads that like I spend the most of my time. The, the, The biggest one that I struggle with is having like inputs around, am I doing things right? Like I'm making a thousand different decisions every week. And I have no idea if those decisions are right until, you know, sometimes weeks later, sometimes months later. 
And so that's like a very challenging thing to like, for most of my life, trying to like being a high achiever, being good in school and getting good grades and like doing well and in, in, in work, like going into an environment where you have no idea if you're doing well or not, and you won't know likely for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of an ongoing struggle of just like trying to just get data points around whether you're on the right track or not. One of the things, one of the core values that we have at Malomo is we seek out opposing viewpoints. And to me, that means like I, whenever I encounter a problem, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a, a, a hypothesis of what I think is the right move in that scenario. And I'm going to go and find out somebody who like vehemently disagrees with my viewpoint just to keep me honest. Right. And like right. to say like, Hey, there's a, there's another path that you hadn't considered and you should really strongly consider it. And then the next hardest thing is like, okay, well, I thought I was going down this path and this person who I respect and has done this before, so I should go down this path. And it feels awkward to go against, like, to sometimes go against your school of thought. And then the the second now is like more around systems thinking and and like, how do I get out of the day-to-day and empower the team to do a lot more and figuring out how how to instill a level of like decision-making within the level below me, my management team, where they are making as intelligent decisions as I might be making, given the information that, that uh, I have or they have. Um, or even better, like, this is this sounds terrible too, but like, they should be making 10x better decisions than I'm making, right? Because they are closer to the ground level and empowering them to like make those decisions. That, that's been a uh, kind of a transition that we're going through now. You know, as a founder, they, they, a lot of times they looked to me and my co-founder to make decisions. Right. At a certain point, it's like, it's actually detrimental to the business for he and I to be making decisions. Like you all should be making decisions. And, and now how do you get confident around the decisions that you're making? So that's kind of the, the next part of the journey that we're working through. I love the point about just seeking that pushback. And I imagine ultimately kind of building consensus that yeah. way. I'd love to move to the rapid fire round. So the first question is, who is a founder that you admire and why? Oh, man. Oh, that's a great question. I have changed so many times my answers to these questions. So one founder that I, I admire a lot is a founder of Gumroad. He's had an interesting journey, you know, venture-backed company raised from top tier VCs. Things did not work. He had to fire everybody. He built the business kind of back up. And now it's, I think he's reported it's at 10 million AR run rate. And he you know, owns it and kind of operates it as a very unique business. I just like love that grit, like that hardcore perseverance, like even though things were not working and the business essentially failed, he still rebuilt it from the ground up. And like most, most venture funds would, would, or outsiders, I shouldn't say venture funds, outsiders would look at that as like a failure, but I, like, I, I'm like, that's a, that's an an insane feat (laughs) to to reach the brink of death. Yeah. And come back. Um, So yeah, I think, I think he's, he's very inspiring. What are you most looking forward to doing once quarantine is over? Oh, man. Uh, I would really just love to go outside with my kids and watch them just play with other kids. Uh, I got two kids at home and I get the most amount of joy just watching them like grow up and, and live their life. And like, that's one thing I just miss, the joy that they get, like interacting with other kids. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be nice, and, and hopefully that happens really soon as well. What is a fun or serious Netflix slash movie slash TV show, any piece of media 
that you've either seen over quarantine or otherwise that you'd recommend? Oh, man. Uh, I, oh, man, you're putting me on the spot. Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it can be any, any piece of content or media. <laughs> um, you know, this can be a uh, guilty pleasure, pleasure TV show, anything. Yeah. Okay. So I, uh, it's funny. It's like, uh, should I answer the thing that like I really love, but it's maybe embarrassing? <laughs> you should. I think you should. I, I, think, I think that's the right answer. <laughs> so this this actually isn't isn't that well. I don't think it's that embarrassing. But um, my wife and I have been like big into Big Brother for whatever yeah. reason. We've just been like on a kick of watching that a lot. It's just yeah. like it's just fascinating to kind of see like the the uh the human strategy work of like how do you how do you have this physical game but the social game and like you got to stab people in the back but you also need them to be your friend to win in the end uh yeah. it's just kind of a fascinating show so I'll, I'll recommend that one i love that i think we've all had our reality tv kick over the past few months so no no embarrassment there <laughs> you're of course super familiar with all consumer products or, or otherwise just given maloma's focus on e-commerce so i'm curious what are your top three product recommendations? Maybe you've bought these over the past couple of months or otherwise. Yeah, for sure. So I have been, I'm actually, I'm actually wearing the shirt right now. Cuts, Cuts Clothing. Okay. I, I love their clothes. Uh, I uh, yeah, bought a lot from them. The cool, cool, like fitting clothes, materials really, really great and durable. Uh, there's a cool company called Oats Overnight that I've been, I've been okay. getting into which is fun. And then there's a drink brand, Olipop, which yeah. is awesome. It's like a, it's a, a healthier version of, uh, not healthy, it's a healthier, it's a healthy version of pop, essentially, where some of their flavors, it like, they taste like, uh, they've got a cola flavor that tastes very eerily close to Coca-Cola. Um, but awesome. uh, yeah, I love that product a lot. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing those. And by the way, I love the Midwest influence there and calling it off. <laughs> we'll definitely have to check those out. And thank you so much for taking the time today. Had a lot of fun. Really enjoyed chatting with you and hearing about your perspectives and background. Thank you again. Awesome, man. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. Appreciate the opportunity to join, man. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to Harlem Capital's More Equity podcast. Make sure to check out our other episodes in the Harlem Capital Founder Series. And to stay connected to all things Harlem Capital, be sure to follow us on Twitter. Until next time.